the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Yes, welcome to the program today on The Country Hour. The largest fine of a labour hire firm in Australian history has been handed down. We're going to get the details on that fine and exactly uh, what was breached on the program shortly. We'll have a look at the flood figures to find out what uh, damage to Victorian agriculture has happened as a result of the flooding emergency, which continues in areas today, and the loss of an important trial site and valuable work due to the flooding as well. We'll hear to from one research organisation about what they've lost. If you're looking for some positivity or just to talk about something different, we'll go Christmas tree farming today as well. Should be fun. Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Emma Field. Good afternoon, Emma. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making rural news, South Australia looks set to smash its grain crop record with the state's Department of Primary Industry, estimating a whopping 12.1 million tonnes of grain, oilseeds and pulses will be harvested this season. That number breaks the previous 2016-17 to harvest record of 11.1 million tonnes, with similar hectares planted to the 2016 season. Grain Producers SA Chair Brad Perry says it shows just what timely rain can deliver. This is going to shape up as a, as a record year and I think the crop and pasture report figures uh, marry up quite well with, uh, with what we're hearing so far from early harvest. Um, from the crops that are coming off, uh, yeah, the yields are, are massive. So um, yeah, the 12.1 million tonnes, I think about a million tonnes more than the previous record in South Australia. Um, you know, it's a massive achievement for our grain producers and, and while we have had some um, you know some challenges along the way um, looking really looking forward to uh, to getting getting it harvested in the silo and uh, and you know really celebrating grain producers and, and their economic contribution to the state. Clark Schober, who farms at Wapilka in the state's Mallee region, says while harvest had been slow so far this year, they're on track for excellent yields. Things are looking very good, especially compared to last year. Last year we nearly had no harvest. Yeah, I'm reasonably young. It's probably the best harvest I've seen. We're above average yield, well and truly. Did get a little bit of yield defect in July and August when we were quite dry. But besides that, the wet spring really picked it all up and we're looking quite good. A lot of people compare it to 2010. We're probably a little bit off of that because we did miss out in July, August. But other side of Loxton is looks fantastic. Probably the best year they've ever had. Nearly half of Australian sheep producers are looking to increase the size of their flock in the next 12 months. That's according to a recent Meat and Livestock Australia and Australian Wool Innovation report, which surveyed almost 2,000 producers. MLA market analyst Jenny Lim says an expected good season from the La Nina weather system and strong lamb and sheep prices are creating confidence in the industry, but there are still some challenges. So we're seeing um, really good pasture growth conditions. So, you know, the expected third La Nina is going to really push out that um, feed availability. And there's also, you know, a really good grain crop coming through in the next, in this harvest. So it's really allowing producers to expand those operations with the feed on ground that's going to be available to them. And I guess what comes with expanding operations is the need for more labour. Um, that was mentioned as a potential hurdle for the industry. What, what else was flagged? They are expecting an increase in input costs, such as 
fertilizer, fuel, um, feed, those kind of things. Um, but actually, there's there's no expectation of changes in land prices, which is quite positive to see, as we've seen quite high prices in the last 12 months. So that's um, something that's really positive to see for the producers. And like you said, 65% are expecting it to be more difficult to um, get skilled labour in. And you know, we will hopefully see some immigration happening in the next 12 months that will alleviate that pressure in the agriculture industry as a whole. And as more hives are destroyed in New South Wales due to a fresh outbreak of destructive roll mite, the Australian Queen Bee Association is concerned about the national impact of state government controls. Over 17,000 hives have been destroyed to stop the spread of varroa and a major New South Wales Queen Bee breeder has had to euthanise all of his bees after the latest infestation was discovered in the Hunter Valley. President of the association, Richard Sims, says onerous varroa control measures are taking their toll. It's been uh, incredibly, incredibly disruptive because... All the states have brought in health certificates and some of the states, their health certificates are just not workable. I know a lot of people who aren't sending to South Australia or Victoria because it's just too hard. What kind um, of requirements if, do, do, do they have for those certificates? Um, well, the South Australian one was 10 pages long. So if we're going to sit down and have to do that, we're going to have to um, pass that cost on in, in bees, which isn't fair. So the movement I, of bees, is, of queen bees particularly, has been very restricted. Is that your assessment? It's incredibly restrictive. And what impact is that having? Well, I know a lot of commercial honey producers are trying to set up their own queen bee breeding program, but it's incredibly hard because queen bee breeding is just a completely different ball game to honey production. Um, it's very hard to do both. And for this Friday, Warwick, that's Rural News. Thanks very much for that, Emma Field, with Rural News for you today. We're going to have a look at some of those numbers from the floods in just a second, but let's talk about this first. The court has handed down the largest fine in Australian history on a labour hire firm for breaching licensing rules. The Supreme Court of Victoria issued fines of more than $386,000 to UNG Services and $96,000 to Director Nico Keat after the firm's license to operate was cancelled for trying to circumvent labour hire laws. Victorian Labour Hire Commissioner Steve Dargavel told me what had happened and what he thinks this means for the wider industry a short time ago. The labour hire business tried to avoid the labour hire licensing scheme. The scheme is there to protect vulnerable workers. The director uh, tried to avoid the scheme, was found out, and the court uh, awarded a penalty of $483,000, elements to go against the company, but also to the director personally for his attempt to uh, circumvent the licensing scheme. How did the the company and the director try and circumvent the the scheme itself? The director applied for a labour hire licence. He wasn't a fit and proper person. Um, He had a number of serious convictions. Uh, He was refused a licence. Another gentleman applied for a licence, obtained a licence, and then the first gentleman popped himself uh, on as the sole director of the second business. So it was an attempt to circumvent the checks that are there to protect vulnerable workers. The authority took the view that that kind of attempt to avoid uh, protection of workers was uh, not right, and we took the matter to court and the judge awarded significant penalties for uh, the the attempted avoidance of the licensing scheme. 
Do you know what type of, of produce or work that this particular company was engaged in, in either harvesting or, or working in? Uh, the business was supplying work, uh, workers or seeking to supply workers in the Arrow Valley and um, is no longer operating. Over $386,000 of fines to the company, $96,000 in fines to the individual. What does that judgment say about the, the strengthening of, of laws to, to licence labour hire in the state? What the judgment says to business is that if you're trying to circumvent the rules and trying to get around the rules and uh, do the wrong thing, you will be found out and you'll pay a very heavy uh, price, not just for your business, but for you personally, and that uh, the consequence of trying to dodge the law at the expense of vulnerable workers will cost you dearly. This is the biggest fine for, for this kind of offence in the in the history of Victoria, is that right? It's the biggest fine for this type of offence in the history of Australia. And so I think we can take from that that, um, you know, the authority takes a very dim view of businesses and people who are trying to avoid the scheme that's there to protect vulnerable workers. Of course, people trying to do the right thing can be reassured that um, if they're being undercut by people trying to dodge the scheme, uh, there to protect vulnerable workers, that uh, there are very significant penalties that can be applied and will be applied. And I suppose as a result of a judgment like this, what is your advice to, to farmers and other businesses that use labour hire companies uh, that are operating in the state? Well, uh, the advice is remains the same, which is please make sure you're using licensed labour hire providers and make sure that everyone in the supply chain is licensed. So if you've got a subby or a, a subby of a subby on your site and you're not quite sure, um, try, and, try and find out because um, it is your obligation to make sure that you're dealing with businesses that are, are operating in accordance with the law. And that's to make sure we've got a level playing field, and make sure that the work, workforce is being treated properly and we've got a sustainable industry. Is this a one-off type of judgment or are there other or similar cases that are currently being brought before the courts? Are there other there are other cases that are in the process of being brought before the courts, and uh, we we would strongly prefer uh, that people like this gentleman did not try and circumvent the law, and and that there wasn't a need for prosecution. But of course, um, there is a need, and we have a number of cases to bring before the courts in the next little while. And we're heading into another busy harvest time in Victoria, albeit somewhat delayed due to the uh, wet weather and, and flooding that is continuing in parts of the state. But are you expecting a, another a busy period, a, a busy time for your office over this summer period? It'll be a busy time. It's a busy time for everyone in the uh, industry and uh, it's, a, it's an important time. Of course, um, we provide lots of resources for uh, the industry to access so that it, they can find their compliance quite easily and it's quite easy to uh, establish if you just go to labourhireauthority.vic.gov.au, you can see who's uh, licensed. And if you've got any one in your supply chain that you can't find on the register, then you should be asking yourself some questions. But yes, it'll be a busy time for um, the entire industry and certainly for the regulator. That's Victorian Labor Hire Commissioner Steve Dargavel speaking there after the Supreme Court of Victoria issued fines of 
There you go, to be precise, $386,742.72 to UNG Services, UNG Services, and $96,685.68 to Nico Keat uh, for trying to circumvent labour hire licensing requirements and not informing uh, the uh, labour hire authority that they had changed who was a director and making Mr Keat a director of UNG services. You are listening to The Country Hour. Next, we'll look at flood figures. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Yeah, another update. And we try and regularly, at least once a week, update these figures for you from Agriculture Victoria on what has been lost to Victorian agriculture as a result of the continuing floods in the state. We'll hear about some of those other losses coming up on the program shortly with other stories. But in terms of the raw numbers, and I realise this is difficult for live radio, but it does bear mentioning, really. Uh, We are now up to 11,261 livestock deaths reported to Agriculture Victoria, more than 1,600 livestock still missing on their report as well. 10,480 kilometres of damaged fencing. Uh, Tonnes of hay or silage destroyed is standing at 126,000 tonnes of hay or silage destroyed. Stored grain lost is nearly at 5,000 tonnes, 4,649 tonnes of stored grain. So not... Grain that was still standing in the paddocks, store grain, has been lost. Uh, Pasture lost, 134,000 hectares. Field crops lost, so that's the standing stuff, 176,000 hectares. And a total farm area affected, now standing at 430,000 hectares. So nearly half a million hectares of land is the total farm area affected by flooding damage in the state. Uh, and of course, these figures is what's reported to Agriculture Victoria. And if you don't feel like your your farm or your, uh, your numbers have been included in that, you can get in contact with Agriculture Victoria to report that. 975 perished beehives. Beehives requiring feeding stands at over 2,000 and honey flow losses in actual tonnes stands at over 200 tonnes of actual honey flow has been lost as well. So huge and extraordinary figures in terms of what has been lost to Victorian agriculture continuing to be reported to Agriculture Victoria. And when they're updated, we try and bring that to you, as I say, at least once a week here on the Country Hour. And speaking of those losses, the Irrigated Cropping Council says it's lost a large part of its crop trials at its testing site near Kerrang. Whilst the site dodged initial flooding of the Loddon River, it was mostly submerged when the Pyramid Creek later burst its banks. Luke Radford spoke with Irrigated Cropping Council Executive Director Charlie Aves to get a better picture of the damage. The site was under for almost three weeks and in terms of what decisions we've made, we've written off the canola so that's lodged and shattered. Even so, we're probably about two and a half weeks from sort of ready to be harvested. The flooding occurred there prior to when the trials we're ready for windrowing, so now it's all just a tangled, uh, lodged mess. With with the small plot header, we need to separate all those plots out. But to manually separate them will just cause even more shattering that's already occurred. Um, so we're never ever going to be able to get some really good, you know, reliable yield data out of those. The chickpeas are also been ridden off. They they got really slammed with ascochiata uh, defoliated and 
just because they've been sitting wet and it's been a cold year there where we had put fungicides out. We had beautiful looking chickpeas with no pods at all anyway. So it never ever set pods even where we were able to control those diseases. The faber beans, again, we've written off. So those have lodged and again have really tangled up together. And when we try and separate them, the plots, that is, the, the plants just snap off at ground level. So, again, we're never going to be able to get any sort of really good yield data out of that. And lastly, we've written off the Barget Barley PGR trial. All of it has lodged as a result of the flooding. So we're pretty confident that um, any sort of harvest variability is going to outweigh any sort of PGR treatment. The, I guess, half unknowns still are the germs are looking... Okay, there's still some green plants in there and and we've got two different bays. On one bay, that grain seems to be filling normally. On the other bay, though, that just hanging off without grain fill. So that particular bay of germs will also have to be a write-off. Yeah, the main wheat variety trial, again, that's looking okay at this stage, but it's still very much unknown how that's going to finish up having been sat either under floodwaters or waterlogged for so long. Yield data is obviously king in these trials, but were you able to get any other useful information out of all of these these tests before the floodwaters came? Yeah, so this year we've seen some really good differences in varieties in terms of disease performance. We've seen really good differences with disease uh, standability, well, yeah, so there are some really interesting things that will come out of it. We've still got a lot of analysing of that data to do, so we're not. I can't, I can't give you any sort of <laughs> results right now, but there, yeah, there will be some interesting information to come out around, particularly that disease management, either through varieties or through fungicides. Mm. Um, we have uh, biomass cuts and things like that for a lot of the nitrogen work. So we'll be able to see differences in terms of how they were performing uh, before um, before the floodwaters hit. Um, and, yeah, but uh, unfortunately, we're probably not going to get many many yield results off the block at all this year. Yeah. And then just lastly, I mean... When we look at the damage that's come through from the floodwaters themselves, does that then cause any issues with setting up trials for next year? Our only previous flood experience, so the, the Irrigated Cropping Council has been managing that block for 21 years, and this is the only time it's ever flooded in the winter. And it's flooded, it did flood back in 2011, and that was a summer flood. And what we saw after that was uh, we do, every year we do deep-end deep soil tests and we did those and we got a reasonably high amount of nitrogen back. So we didn't put as much in crop top dressing as we would do normally because we're like, oh, you know, there's heaps in the soil there. But the reality was is it's in so much nitrification and, and the bug, all the good bugs were doing what good bugs do. and all that was there then wasn't there in the season because it had come through much earlier than it would do normally. So we were actually under-fertilised in that uh, 2012 season as a result. So we'll probably this year soil test in season to make those top dressing decisions just to yeah keep a handle on 
wear nitrogens out through the growing season because it will look slightly different as a result of all the moisture that's out there at the moment. suppose that's the life of research, isn't it? Already thinking about what you're going to do next year, but just must be enormously frustrating to, to know so much of the work has been lost for this year. That's Irrigated Cropping Council Executive Director Charlie Aves speaking with Luke Radford there about their site at Kerrang being hit with flood water and what that means for their work, particularly this year. You're listening to the Country Hour and we've been spending a lot of time talking about where floodwaters are moving and how things are looking. And in, I suppose it's good news, it appears floodwaters may have finally peaked at Mullamine in southern New South Wales, where we've been focusing for much of this week. Uh, after so many weeks after the torrential rains, it caused what's considered to be the worst flooding in that area for more than 100 years. But there's no rest in sight for those battling the waters, which will take weeks to recede and reveal what destruction is left in its wake. Angus Verley spoke with China Gibson, who farms along the Billabong Creek upstream of Mullamine, about how things are looking. We hope we've reached the peak. That's the Edwards River, and uh, the Billabong flows into it. The Billabong is still rising, but it's only supplying uh, ten or 15,000 megs of that. We don't know, but a lot of it's unregulated. Okay, so highest flows on record for, for both watercourses? Highest flows, highest height in Moolamine. I don't know about the flows, but the height in 1956, the last record like, that white man's got is, uh, was 6.094, which is about 15, about 15 centimetres below this one. So highest we know. I don't know about 1917. I, I haven't seen records for that. There was probably no records kept. How have they got on in town? Have they managed to keep water out of most areas? They're battling in north of Moolamine, what they call Moolamine North. Um, some of the one of the houses is right on the creek's edge, so there's no levee. Um, we lost one house on a little hobby farm south of Moolamine. That went through the house. Poor old girl, she's uh, got in her kitchen. But there's a lot of fair few of the outskirts, little hobby farms where there's water under the houses now. I haven't heard of any in the houses except for just out of town. A lot of blokes having a battle, they're just 24-7 every two hours, they get up, check their pumps, they're just, they're getting flood flood fatigue, I call it. <laughs> they're getting cranky and tired. Well, fair enough. I mean, you're, you're quite a few weeks into it, aren't you? Oh, this mate's been, he's been, we started sandbagging his place over about a month and a half ago, just out of precaution. And we've just been building it ever since. He hasn't got a levy between him and the creek, his, his house is on the creek's edge which is a great place to live, but not good when you've got record floods. He's kept it out so far, kept it from going under his house and over his little block. There's levee banks, there's sandbags, there's everything. Whatever they can throw at it, they're all trying. And just plenty of man-hours. The, um, the RFS, our local RFS station, the rural, rural fire service, is sort of running the show with their head honchos, and they've got volunteers coming from Western Australia, Sydney, everywhere around the state and interstate. And now the SES is starting to turn up in town. They've been busy elsewhere, but they're in town now. Jider, I understand that they're being well looked after with some some classic country cooking. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, put, I do some notes every week. I just said, just put out there, like, if you want to help these volunteers, they're living away from home. They're all volunteers. Just drop some uh, cakes or slices in, and they've been getting pretty well fed by a local cook. So well done to everyone that threw something enough and took it down to our volunteers because if you've been lumping sandbags all day, you're really looking for a good smoker. We've been reporting a lot on the impact that all of this is having on livestock and particularly livestock getting stranded and people using helicopters and whatever they can to rescue those stranded stock. And you had another case of that in your area this week. 
Yeah, there's plenty of stock getting stuck. They're just turn your back on them. I've got somehow just in time with this fella. He got a thousand sheep stuck out on an island. Full wool because he's trying to shear at the moment. So we borrowed a booze boat, a party boat we call them, with a fence rider on the outside and he, he's been carting. The sheep have got a party boat ride. He's promised new carvers to the owner. <laughs> 90 trips, I think, they work out they had to do. I don't know how they got on, but I've seen photos of it. And the sheep looked quite happy in the boat and the dog on top of the sheep. The owner looked a bit stressed. But yeah, the, the two sheep had helicopter rides, trailer rides, chase through water, now they've got a party boat ride. <laughs> Whatever you've got to do to save animals. And you sent me those pictures, China, and I agree. The sheep do really look quite happy. So perhaps they know that uh, that what's going on is, is, is saving their lives. Yeah, I'm surprised because... Yeah, they, they look quite happy in there. The dog's sitting on their back. It's, it's a great photo, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. And, and just another case, China, just one one example of, of, I mean, everyone's got their own story, don't they? Oh, there's, there's blokes just putting in, just volunteering for weeks. One fella who is, he's blocks under, so he's just been coming to town and helping everyone that needs help. He's been unreal. Oh, Nico, everyone knows who Nico is in Willoughby. And plenty of others too, don't you worry. That The RFS has just stepped up, the local ones that have got time have just stepped up and the whole community is just doing what they can to help each other out and help themselves, of course, too. That's China Gibson who farms upstream of Mullamine on the Billabong Creek speaking with Angus Fairley about the thought that the, the floods might have finally peaked there, but as you just heard, a long road ahead. Uh, you're listening to The Country Hour. We've got the full weather report on the way right now, though. Let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Natasha Shapova. Hi, Natasha. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news. Police are searching near the Framlingham Forest in southwest Victoria as part of a missing persons squad investigation. The ABC understands the search is in relation to missing Warrnambool man Christopher Jarvis. Two men were charged over his murder last week. Police say they will provide more information when appropriate. The Federal Health Department has confirmed its plans not to continue funding COVID clinics beyond the end of this year, which would put added pressure on GP and medical clinics. Around 100 GP-led respiratory clinics are operating across Australia since the government established them in early 2020, providing vaccines and COVID tests. In a statement, the government says the clinics were meant to be temporary and will make further decisions on Australia's national COVID-19 response for next year in the coming weeks. More Victorian tradespeople, such as plumbers, carpenters and surveyors, can now work in New South Wales with just their home state licences and registrations. The New South Wales government announced the development yesterday with interstate tradespeople, except those in Queensland, now able to work in New South Wales so long as they notify state regulators beforehand. Aubrey MP Justin Clancy says the change will help with flood recovery works. Volunteer conservation groups say a massive drop in hours worked in Victoria's national parks is in part due to a new policy enacted by Parks Victoria. Volunteer hours worked in the state's parks hit their peak in 2019, with more than 300,000 hours worked. Last year, just over 100,000 hours were worked by volunteers. Former convener of the Victorian Environment Friends Network, Paul Strickland, says parks now requires all groups to have a pre-approved schedule of activities, lumping organising committees with more work. 
And ahead of the weekend's warm weather, Victoria's Environment Protection Authority is advising caution when it comes to swimming in local waterways. The EPA is conducting extensive testing of water and sediment in flood-affected areas. While the results have been fairly good so far, Chief Environmental Scientist Professor Mark Patrick Taylor says there is still the risk of E. coli in flooded waters. And for more regional news, head to abc.net.au forward slash news or download the ABC News app. Thanks very much for that, Natasha. Natasha Shapova there with regional news headlines. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Just before we go to the Weather Bureau, we were speaking earlier this week on the Country Hour about the strange things that have landed on your property, really, uh, because a hang glider landed right in between two harvesters going at it uh, in northwestern Victoria earlier this week. That was a very funny story. You can listen back to that if you missed it in our Country Hour podcast. But many of you have been sending in some wonderful stories of things that have turned up on your property. David said, I was working on a dozer with an open cab in the bottom of a reasonably deep dam, reversing back, and I felt the breeze come up. Old mate had dropped in and landed an R22 chopper just behind me, he says. And uh, this one says, I wasn't alive yet, but in one of the wet seasons in the 70s, my aunt's brother took a detour in an Iroquois chopper to check in on her at our family property. I guess the Air Force wouldn't get away with that these days, says Anissa. And uh, a couple others are coming in too. This one says, we had a hot air balloon land in our farm after it hit power lines. Luckily, it landed safely. The air balloon operator offered us a free ride for our trouble. Safe to say, we didn't take it up. At the Weather Bureau, and can join you now on the program. Hi, Alana. Good afternoon. How's it going? Tell me about the weather. Yes, yeah, looking pretty warm for the weekend. That's um, that's really the, the news with the weather. Um, today, uh, hitting 30 degrees in northern parts of the state, uh, in the low to mid-20s in southern parts of the state, um, generally... Um, mostly dry with a couple of showers possible in the northeast. And then tomorrow and Sunday, we're looking at a continued warming trend. So tomorrow, uh, likely to hit high 20s to 30 or so in southern parts of the state and getting up to about 35 degrees in the far north, um, a, a mostly dry day for tomorrow. Sunday, even hotter, hitting 38 degrees in Mildura, um, and really 30 degrees um, for much of the state except for um, the elevated parts. So really the warmest day that we'll have seen in quite a while is expected on Sunday. And it will be mostly dry for much of the state uh, with a few isolated showers and thunderstorms possible in eastern parts. Our next change day really is coming through on Monday with a trough passing through the state. So that will uh, bring some cooler weather as well as uh, some showers to much of the state and some thunderstorms to the east. We're not looking at uh, super significant rainfall turtles at this, sta- um, at this stage. So we're looking at about 1 to 5 millimetres in southern parts, 5 to 15 in the east and up to about 25 to 30 possible with, with thunderstorms in the east uh, at this stage. Tuesday, that, that change starts to move out, but still some lingering showers and thunderstorms, particularly in the east, uh, and continuation of that cooler weather through to, through to the end of the week uh, with just some isolated showers about the south Wednesday um, through Friday next week. So really the heat over the weekend and then uh, pretty standard type change coming through into the week. And any warnings uh, either today or across the weekend we should be keeping an eye out for? 
No, so we've got those ongoing flood warnings um, as flood conditions uh, generally continue to ease. Uh, but other than that, we actually don't have any warnings out uh, on Monday, really. Uh, we're likely to see um, oh, there's a possibility of some severe thunderstorms with some damaging winds. Um, but until then, a bit of fog about in the mornings um, with the settled weather, but generally just hot. Hot, yeah, not quite our first yeah. 40 of the year, but or well, 30 of this summer, I should say, but uh, we're getting mighty close in Mildura, aren't we? Alana, thanks so much for the update. No worries, thanks a lot, feel better. Oh, <laughs> well, you saved you saved me from a cough so, on air, so that was very, very helpful. Thank you very much. Alana Cherny's a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast there. Uh, a few more of your stories of st- things that have landed on your property. I liked this one. Hang glider, gliders, ultralights. There was even a scaled-down home-built biplane. He had a fuel blockage. You started the engine with a pull rope. He reckons we should have been able to hear him swearing from about 3,000 feet down. Thanks very much for that one, Mark. And Richard said, 35 years ago, I was working at Roseworthy Ag College in South Australia. A bunch of paratroopers, probably from the nearby Edinburgh Air Force Base, landed in the small field being used as wheat research. Uh, Trashing it. Dr. Remus was not very impressed. I did love that one as well. Uh, Plenty coming. And Brad said he's had a weather balloon. And we heard from Michael Efron earlier in the week, weather balloons still released every day, twice a day from, from Melbourne, still turn up in weird and wonderful locations. Maybe we should talk more even about that one day too. You're listening to The Country Hour. Earlier on in the program, we spoke about the damage from this flooding emergency and what that was doing to agriculture in the state. Well, you don't have to remember very hard to remember the devastation of the 2019-2020 bushfires, which claimed nearly 7,000 head of livestock and 17,000 hectares of pasture. But now Victoria's Inspector General for Emergency Management says he's pleased to see recommendations from his inquiry into the fires continuing to be rolled out. Tony Pearce is touring East Gippsland and the northeast over the coming months to update communities on that progress. In Omeo yesterday, he said he was pleased to see greater use of mechanical and chemical fuel reduction methods, among other developments. Yeah, we're going pretty well with with uh, with the majority of them. They've all got they've all got activity underway, well and truly underway. So that's that's the the positive thing. I think two of the the big things that I was looking for when we did the inquiry was to see far better coordination in a couple of areas. One of those particularly is in the areas of uh, fuel reduction and hazard reduction. And, and how that's done, not only on public land, but also on private land. So obviously you've got DELP on the public land side, CFA on the other, and then a number of agencies working. Um, we needed far greater coordination to address a lot of the smaller issues, and I don't mean that in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an important sense, but smaller issues the community were identifying. A lot of it came down to communication and, and coordination. So we've got the Office of Bushfire Risk Management's been created now in that space to be able to help address that, and we're seeing a lot of, a lot of good outcomes. And in the recovery side, uh, um, Emergency Recovery Victoria has been created. That's, the uh, I guess, the extrapolation of what was Bushfire Recovery Victoria to address recovery for all emergencies now, not just bushfires. I wanted to ask you about that. We might come to that in a moment. But yep. um, you brought up uh, hazard reduction burning there. Are you happy you can tick that box and that's now being better managed? You can move on? Absolutely. I can, I'm satisfied it's being better managed. It's going to take, like everything, it's going to take a number of years to, to see the real benefits of what's happening there. But it's not only the actual burning to the side. Again, we were, I was critical of the fact that um, there wasn't enough um, mechanical 
uh, application uh, being being put to the hazard reduction chemical and otherwise there, there was so much focus on fire and as we know the window of opportunity for fire is very small in a year and getting smaller so therefore utilising other methods was really very important and we're seeing now 365 day a year application of those methods which include fire. And of those 32 recommendations, um, what's the, the hold-up or where would, where would you like to see more progress being made? Which, which ones are lagging? I don't think there's any particular hold-up in any, in any given area. I mean, most of the areas where some things happen slower than others happen, uh, are because it's just um, it takes longer to do, actually do some of the things, whether you like it or not. There's obviously budgetary considerations, and we're going through this issue now post-COVID, where everybody needs money, so they're fighting. All the agencies are fighting for the same pot of, of a limited resource, if you like. So budget has an impact as well. But it's the biggest issue for me, really, is the fact that a lot of these things just genuinely take time, and you've got to give them time to be able to get the work done. It's as simple as that. And you mentioned earlier emergency recovery, Victoria. Uh, a lot of your recommendations reference that organisation. It's now uh, up and running. Um, how effectively do you think it's running? Um, I'm very satisfied with what I've seen so the fact that it was created was the big was obviously the big recommendation and a lot of the others sort of pretty well springboard off that but um, I think the evidence of how well ERV is functioning now is the the large storms that we had in the east of Melbourne and up in the Yarra Ranges in 2021 June around that period of June significant really big event um, ERV even though it was still called Bushfire Recovery Victoria at the time was given the obligation of actually responding to that did that extremely effectively we Worked very well with communities and, and the outcomes we saw from that exercise versus the ones that we saw during the fires were, were chalk and cheese. The floods that we're now seeing in many parts of the state, again, we're seeing ERV functioning in a way that BRV wasn't able to function prior to that. So, um, again, I'm, I'm very satisfied with what I'm seeing, but the, the proof will be in the pudding. Obviously, we're talking about sustainability here, um, and once we've seen a few more events get, get underway, we'll, we'll have a much better idea, but I'm pretty confident things are going well. That's Victoria's Inspector General for Emergency Management, Tony Pearce, speaking there with Peter Somerville. You're listening to The Country Hour. Let's talk about difficulties in harvest. We heard about cherries earlier this week. Well, cooler temperatures and above average rainfall are creating challenges for stone fruit producers along the Murray River region in uh, northern Victoria. The harvest is running more than a week behind and growers are dealing with diseases such as brown rot and fruit with split pits. Uh, Swan Hill reporter Francesco Salvo spoke with a local farmer, Mick Young, about how the season was going there. I think in October we got near 200 mil around here, so that's totally unheard of for this region. So that's that's caused um, problems with tree losses. Like some, every farm's a little bit different, but some farms have lost quite a few trees, um, and it causes issues where if you lose trees in part of patches, and you have to still irrigate and fertilise the healthy trees, and then the, the other ones are getting more water again, and so it's created issues like that. Um, and disease created a little bit more disease pressure where we haven't been able to spray because the ground's been too wet so it's put issues on that side of things but generally it's considering the weather I think we've got through okay. You mentioned disease I've been hearing concerns about brown rot about split stone what sort of some of the pressure that's been on the actual fruit? Yeah split stone's massive this year a lot more than normal Um, we've seen varieties with 40% um, up to 40% split stone, which creates issues because that's unmarketable. So that all goes to waste. Um, so that means now our volumes are down. There's brown rot, yeah, probably different farms, different issues. 
Um, but there's been a little bit of um, shot hole in that around, which can mark the fruit and make the tree a little bit crook for a while. So the ability now it's dried out, we can spray, we're getting back on top of it all. Split stone means that the fruit is hard to market, but is it still eatable? Can people still consume? Um, there's kind of two types. There's open split where the bottom has a hole in it. They're, they're, they're fully rubbish because um, you can get like beetle. It puts beetle pressure in there, which create the brown rot. They put a hole in the fruit and then that can turn to brown rot. So open splits are pretty much rubbish. Um, we have got a lot of closed split as well, which if it's a minor, minor dish, uh, like out of shape, then we can market that as class two. But generally, if they're really splitting two halves and the close, bottom still close and have to go to waste as well. So do you think because of that waste, it'll be a bit harder to find certain fruit varieties in the supermarket over summer? Um, I think there's definitely going to be lower, lower periods of certain varieties that won't be, won't be available, but I think it'll still be, still be a reasonable supply overall. And in terms of price, what are you sort of expecting this season? The price has been okay so far, but, but it's due to the shortages. Um, so hopefully the price holds where it needs to be for the cost of production and the losses that everyone's going through at the moment. The season is running a couple of days behind because of that cooler and wet weather. Does, does that mean the season will finish a bit later this year? It's hard to tell because on years where we start later than normal, by the time you get to Christmas, it starts to catch back up. And then you can quite, even, quite often even finish earlier. It just depends what the weather's doing. But at the moment, we're still running that seven days behind. So... Who knows, really, but I'd be expecting we'll still be late right through because it's just it's such a, a different start to the season. I think everything's been shocked. And has the wet weather affected taste? I've heard some concerns about some fruit not being as sweet as it may have been in the past because it hasn't been as hot. Is that, has that been an issue? Yeah, it has it has for the early varieties. Bricks is, Bricks is the sugar levels. That's definitely been down on normal um, just due to the cold, cold wet weather because you, you need sunshine to make the sugars. Um, the fruit's still eating okay, considering though. Quite often the bricks levels are reading low, but the flavour's still okay. Um, but now we're heading into warmer weather and a bit higher bricks varieties. Um, hopefully it all increases and stays strong. And people love their stone fruit over the Christmas period. Are there any varieties that you'd recommend to the consumer this year that you think are doing particularly well? Um, yeah, look, I think once you hit Christmas, most, most of the varieties all have a better flavour range. The profile seems to just be nicer because they've had longer in the, in the sunshine to increase that sugar level. So realistically, I think it's a personal choice because some people like them sweet and some people like them tangy and some like a peach, some like a nectarine. So it's a personal choice. There's some nice plums coming through just before Christmas as well. I know the mosquitoes have been pretty bad this year. What's it like for people on the farms trying to pick the fruit? How are they going with all the mosquitoes? Um, it's been, been ordinary, actually. They've settled down a little bit lately, but there three weeks ago when we were getting the rain and it was still... I don't know, cooler and wet. It sounds strange, but it was worse then than what it is now. But they seem to come and go. But it's no, it's been very ordinary. Everyone just covers up from head to toe, basically, because the air guard's not working too much anymore. <laughs> oh, that's a common problem, isn't it? Mick Young, a Swan Hill Stone fruit grower, speaking there about the difficulties of the season. And there's a lot of difficulties going on at the moment. Yesterday on the program, we were speaking about the huge fall in wool prices. You can read more about that online now, abc.net.au slash rural. But there's also been, as we've discussed as well, huge falls at sale yards for both sheep and cattle this week, which has farmers holding out, waiting until Christmas to sell in the hope of a market bounce back. 
Clunes sheep and cattle farmer John Henderson Drift says the combination of weather and poor pricing has him holding off sending stock to yards at the moment. He's also storing wool rather than selling to the market as wool prices slumped to the lowest price in US dollar terms for 12 years. The downturn in lambs, particularly the secondary store lambs, is massive at the minute. Anything that's not really right up to the money, they're still going well. The real, real good lambs are still going all right, but anything off the boil a bit is, um, yeah, is dropped. It's 40, 50 bucks, maybe more in some cases, I think, yeah. So you've been out crutching today. Usually would you be preparing your lambs to sell in the next couple of weeks? The lambs that we saw yesterday and the day before, some of them would have been prepared for sale uh, rather than shearing. Um, but, yeah, they're just not quite up to the money at the minute with the um, difficult weather we've had, prolonged wet, 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 no sun. It's just been a bit of a difficult sort of a spring. And, yeah, the numbers of lambs that I would normally have ready now aren't quite up there. So the ones I'll crutch in today were a later drop lamb, so um, they're not ready in here. So it's a combination of both weather and prices that's not filling you with too much confidence at the moment? Yeah, it would be a combination of both. I'd say there's a lot more unfinished lambs on the market than normal. If anything that's reflecting on my farm, is, uh, is that's the case, definitely, yep. Are you going to hold over your lambs until next year? How long do you think you'll keep them at your property for? Um, well, now they're shorn. They'll be at least probably six or eight weeks. So it'll be into next year. Calves that we would have sold last month or this month, they've dropped off about 300 bucks this last week or so as well. So, yeah, you're going to run a few of them on. You know, we are starting to sort of air off the paddocks, air off a bit. We, we certainly haven't got a shortage of food here uh, north of Ballarat. So we... Um, we will pump the market for a couple of months and see how it goes. Are you confident that it might bounce back? Um, hopefully it will. Yeah, once the dust settles, I think, and, uh, you know, the amount of food that's around uh, on my place in here, it's phenomenal. Hopefully it doesn't become a fire hazard. We hopefully get another quiet fire season. We've had two in a row already, which is fantastic. So, But there will be a lot of food around. But, yeah, in saying that, the calves and the lambs will have to be supplementary fed to sort of get them up to the quality I want them, yeah. And do you sell the wool that you have recently shorn off your lambs? Uh, normally I do, yeah, but at the moment I've got uh, last year's and the year before still sitting here, so <laughs> no, I haven't sold it for the last three years. Um, Is that due to pricing? And due to pricing, yep. It's not, when it comes to dollar terms, it's, it's not a big value of dollars that I'm hanging on to, so yeah, I've been punting the market, but the, it hasn't come around to suit yet. It's... Um, may not so yeah might have to move some of it on soon there you go that's uh, john henderson drift there speaking uh, about what he's doing at the moment particularly with livestock but also in the wool market which have both been falling quite significantly this week he's a farmer out at clunes and he was speaking with jane mcnaughton Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. 
Yes, please get your entries in for Farmer of the Year. You'll be hearing a lot of it over this summer period, so it'd be good if you can take the time to either enter yourself or someone that you think is pretty good. And they can be young, old, or in a bunch of different categories. I'd suggest going and checking it out. Uh, Nigel Vespaghetto was, I'm worried. Perhaps a drought's underway. There's nothing in the rain gauge today. 1,321.6 millimetres at the end of November for the year so far. Uh, says Nigel, huge figures, aren't they? Kelvin says, good afternoon. Kelvin from Murrayville, a very wet spring here. It's just over with 100 millimetres uh, for September, October, November, just over 300 millimetres in total harvest uh, has been affected. Underweight grain, six kilometres west of me, has had 370 millimetres in the same period as well. Thanks very much for that, Kelvin. Let's move away from floods and damage and livestock at the moment and... Uh, well, let's talk about the countdown to Christmas. Uh, there's been reports of Christmas trees not doing so well in wet weather in areas of New South Wales, but in the northeast of Victoria, festive pine trees are growing in abundance. And the Shamburon family has been farming in Stanley for more than 140 years, growing apples, cherries, and now they're on to Christmas trees. Annie Brown spoke with orchardist Peter Shambirong about his festive value add and, uh, well, be aware of the gas gun going off to scare the birds whilst they were having a chat. Well, the Shambirong family have been here for a long time. Their grandparents were miners. That was about 140 years ago and I inherited the farm when I was 16. I'm now 75. Um, In that period of time, we've grown pine trees, Now we're back into Christmas trees and cherries, apples and chestnuts. Our businesses run on pick your own and same as come pick your own Christmas trees. We don't charge an entry fee. We tend to like people to come to the farm, bring their family and enjoy themselves. The Christmas trees are $50, doesn't matter what size they are. Um, for For example, my son went to... Ballarat over the weekend and paid 140 for a tree, so $50 is a good value. So tell me a bit about the the kind of Christmas trees and prime this trees. Is a different, this is a different one. This is, you can either call these Oregon's or Douglas Spruce. The Christmas trees you buy in the shop are radiata. They're pruned. We don't prune these. They're just naturally grown. This time of the year, they've got that softness at the end of the branches. They're incredible. It's like patting a like a pet a dog's tail or something like they're very soft peter like and And they'll have a nice really smell about them in your room and once again the prune ones in the radiator they tend to bleed on the end so you'll have a sappy part the only part you'll have a sappy on these is perhaps the, the the trunk so a lot of Christmas tree growers, I think, have been struggling this year, this season, yeah. because of all the water around. But how have you been going here? No, we're fine. Um, we've lost a lot of our cherry trees, um, but the, the Christmas trees, they're fine. They're loving it. Um, they've actually liked the cool weather more so than the heat. And because we haven't had frosts on them, they're much better. They're, they're, the frond uh, needles are really good. Mm. Yeah. I guess Stanley's also known for its its pine trees, really, isn't it? It so. is, yes. Yeah, they used to grow these down in the forest, uh, not far from the Magic Forest, but it's no Douglas firs or Oregon um, grown in this area anymore. What made you want to get into the Christmas tree business? Oh, I think farming to survive, we, we need to have something else. Uh, we had cherry trees growing on this area. Uh, unfortunately, the dust off the road... Uh, just the cherries will not 
Bible here. So back into Christmas trees, it was a cheap way of doing it. I guess we've been able to clear the land and grow our own seedlings and, uh, and I put them in. The only thing that gets into them is the rabbits. They may nip them off when they're very young, so they're in various stages. Mm. Um, what's the demand like for Christmas trees at the moment? A bit slow at the moment, but I think come next week in December, I think people will come. We, we had a good year last year and that was our first year and people have been ringing up so we will come back and get them. So, Do you have a big Christmas tree in your house for Christmas? Yes, we do, actually. <laughs> yeah. I thought of that before when I was decorating, and I'm thinking if my wife saw me decorating, she said, well, why can't you do it? So, um, yeah. <laughs> Have you put up your Christmas tree yet? No, no, no. Next weekend's job? Probably, yeah. yeah. Um, but look, it's a day out in the farm for the children to see how we actually farm with the cherries. Unfortunately, the cherries won't be ready for a couple of weeks. For farmers like ourselves to survive, and I'm not just talking about us, us it's all small farmers, support us by coming on the farm, support the farmer's market, um, and that's how we will survive. And you'll be surprised the amount of people that actually ask us on the cherry crop, how many crops a year do we get? And my reply to it was, only one, thank God. So people don't understand. People say, oh, I didn't think cherries grew on trees. I thought they grew on vines. So people need to come onto our farm. My brother's famous uh, words for any of the children coming onto the cherry orchards, he said, can you whistle? And they'd ask why. And Joe would say, well, while you're whistling, you can't eat our cherries, as a joke. And you see those children now they're young adults and as they walk into the shed they're whistling just to remind us they've been here before so you, you meet fantastic people peter chamberon from europa gully orchards in stanley i'll spare you my whistling and i'd be eating some out of the orchard anyway he was speaking there to annie brown can't help myself around food. Let's go to Hamilton Sheep uh, with the markets moving around. We can uh, have this on a Friday now, and it wasn't very good last week, so let's see how it's running this week. Chris Agnew, take it away. Thanks, Warwick. Agents yarded a small number of 2020 sheep at Hamilton this week, where the quality was good, consisting principally of well-finished crossbred ewes and a very good line of merino weathers with a start in the skin. All the regular buyers were present, resulting in a market that was unchanged from last Friday. Heavy crossbred ewes sold to 115 ahead to average around 250 cents. Well-finished merino weathers sold to a top of 126, with the merino ewes selling to $80 ahead. Light sheep were marketed to average around 250 to 320, whilst good merino mutton sold to an average of 350 to 400 cents a kilogram carcass weight. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. A last minute text has just come in. Andrew from UDC says we've stepped up 25 cents to support suppliers with looming fees and FERT increases in the second half of the season. We'll try and follow that one up for Monday. That's interesting news coming through with a couple of milk step ups uh, around this week. So something well worth looking at on the Country Hour next week. I hope you have a great weekend. Remember, all the rural news and information you need is online, abc.net.au slash rural. You can listen back to Victorian Country Hour programs. You can read about the South Australian grain farmers looking at a record crop this year or the world's biggest prawn farm, which could be on the way to a remote part of the country as well. I'll be back with you on the program on Monday. Until then, I hope you have a great weekend.